Welcome to the relaunch of Silver Cloud's podcast series, CB Talks. My name is Jorge Palacios, and I invite you to listen in as we talk digital mental health science and the latest research and industry trends used to empower lives, break down barriers, and help end stigmas surrounding mental health. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Rogers, who's the Player Development Manager at the Gaelic Players Association in Ireland. She graduated in 2013 from UCD in psychology and recently received a master's in work and organizational psychology from Dublin City University. She also holds certificates and diplomas in both professional leadership and project management, which is quite impressive. The Gaelic Players Association supports over 4,000 male and female intercounty players and elite athletes to achieve their potential on and off the pitch. They have a bunch of holistic well-being and development projects which span the entirety of a player's career. Uh, and I'll let Jennifer speak more to those in a minute. And Jennifer also developed and runs the GPA Wellbeing Program, which includes 24-hour counseling support services and a benevolent fund. So we're really, really excited to speak to Jennifer and I invite you to come along. So Jenny, how are you, first of all? I'm good, thanks. I had a good weekend. I can't believe how quickly the year is flying by. I'm nearly Christmas, but um, yeah, I'm all good. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Actually, um, when is the season starting to end, by the way? So it's actually, it's funny, our work gets busier when the season is maybe on off season, because that's when, when players maybe have a little bit more time. So the season is due to start again, kind of towards the end of December, um, January, that's when training starts up again. And then it's into games and January, February. So players are back with their clubs at the moment, but it's busy season for us. Definitely. We're kept going. It never stops, does it? Um, so can I start things off by asking you a little bit? I want to dive a little bit deeper about what is it that you do, but can I ask it like this? Um, could you share something uniquely exciting about your work? Maybe something that we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile. Um, just, you know, what, what makes you get up and do your work every day? What drives you? Yeah, it's a good way to ask the question. I think for me, it's just the variety and the diverse range of things that I can be doing. So on a Monday or a Tuesday or any day of the week that I sit at my desk, I really don't know what could come up that day. Um, so that's quite exciting. And the fact that I get to work with, I suppose, elite athletes in a sport that I love is is really exciting as well. And, and that's something that definitely gets me up in the morning. I'm a huge sports fan. So all you had to say to me was like, I get to like work closely with these athletes and maybe the odd free ticket or two. And that would have sold it to me, really. Those things. Um, too. The tickets are nice too. Hard to come, but they're nice. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Um, and can I ask also, when was the time that you um, that was key in, in you then deciding to go down this career path? Because it's a fascinating role. I think it's a very important one to have. But how do you come about doing what you do? Yeah, I think that's a, another good question. And I suppose for me, it was really um, a fantastic opportunity for me to be able to marry my passion in sport with my kind of passion for supporting people um, with their well-being and kind of their overall development. And I think for me, I actually am a, a player myself. So I've played with Westmead Ladies since 2005, um, which I think this is my 17th season. So yeah, definitely time to, to hang up the boots sometime soon. But when this job came up with the GPA, it was just a no-brainer for me in terms of 
I was able to, you know, join my passion for sport with a role that that I really liked in terms of, of well-being and, and sport and the well-being of others. And my background is psychology. So I studied psychology and did a master's in psychology. Um, and then I went on to work in research for a number of years and I worked with Jigsaw, which is the National Centre for Youth Mental Health in Ireland. So I was always really interested in that line of work and in that area. And then obviously a lot of our athletes are young people. And I could just, I suppose, see that the crossover there and the fact that it was in a sport um, sport, sport and arena, that was something that just really appealed to me to be able to, to join the two. That's great. I mean, um, I think it's really cool. Like I said, it's very important. And and like I mentioned, I am a huge sports fan. And, you know, obviously for you, it's very natural to marry those things, you know, well-being and sports. And as a fan, I can tell you, you know, that I've always found it strange how as a fan, you can link it to your mental health and emotions so much. You know, every time your team loses, you feel terrible. You have a really bad week. It, it could affect you really badly. And then the opposite, there's no greater thrill than seeing your team win the championship, right? But then, you know, this hasn't always translated to players, you know, players who actually live and are responsible for sometimes the emotions of millions and that pressure, um, which you know as a player yourself, you know, what is it then particular to athletes that we should be mindful of when it comes to their mental health? I think the first thing for the GPA, and it's a really key message for us, is that the players are, are people first. So we have, a, I suppose, a, a line that we use is that you see players, we see people. So these athletes are people and they experience the same challenges and the same different things that come up for them, that come up for everybody else as well. But in addition to that, they have, as you mentioned there, the pressure to perform in front of, of thousands, hundreds of thousands. So that's definitely something that can have an impact, particularly if they're going through a period of poor performance, maybe, or, you know, they're, they're not performing to, to the way that they would like. Um, and when you have hundreds of thousands of people watching that, that that can be quite um, that can have quite an impact on your kind of your self-esteem and, and your identity as well. And um, other things, obviously, that, you know, people maybe consider are um, the research obviously highlights it is the fact that injury, you know, serious injury is something that it's inevitable. Injury is a part of sport, but serious injury is something that a lot of athletes have to contend with. And that can have a massive impact on their mental health because for a lot of athletes, their identity is very closely tied to the sport. And when that's taken away, that can that can have a massive negative impact on them. And then apart from that, then obviously there's, you know, transition from the sport itself. So when they're finished playing um, and they've spent a lot of a large proportion of their life dedicated to the sport and um, when that's kind of finished and when that's over, it's a new chapter of their lives. And, and some people can find that particularly daunting and that can have an impact as well. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think it's great. Like you, you're answering my follow-up questions, um, so you're making my job harder. By the way, thanks. Um, <laughs> but no, actually, this made me think. One of the things I want to ask you was to talk further about that quote that you had. I think it's in the Irish Examiner about their identity linked to you know to their job, which is you know being an elite uh, sports person, right? And that identity, like you said, can disappear after they quit. So, you know, it's not that it just suddenly they're not playing and then all is good. It's, you know, that's why oftentimes, I guess, a lot of them become commentators or coaches or things like that, because they're just naturally tied to it. Um, So, yeah, no, I I think I agree completely with you. And then you you were talking about the fact that they got injured. One of the things that I've said is, you know, when they get physically injured, the response from the public 
you know, is to clap or like to, you know, to egg them on or to maybe play through the injury and that shows toughness, but that doesn't usually translate again to their mental health. There's still a little bit of stigma around opening up about mental health, just as if it was a physical injury. So can you talk a little bit about the stigma that still exists, maybe in sports in general, but of course, uh, from the you know, Gaelic football point of view, how do you see that in your day to day? Yeah, definitely. And just before I get on to that, I think an important thing to note is that for our players, the sport isn't their job. Um, so, so they're amateur elite athletes. So that means that, you know, we know from research that we've done previously with the, the SRI that they're dedicating an average of 31 hours a week to their sport as an amateur athlete. And that's on top of their professional careers as, you know, maybe they're working in finance or, or they're, they're working in pharmacy or whatever that might be. Or else they're studying um, and, and they're studying to, be, to become whatever they're going to become in their later careers. So um, they're balancing this almost full time role with an actual full time job or, or study as well. So I think that's what's really unique about our membership as well. And I think that's fascinating for me, um, you know, the fact that they're able to, to balance all of that. And I, I think one of the things that you mentioned there around identity was really brought home to us when we did our student report in 2019, where we found that one in every two student members identified more as an athlete than a student. And both for us, you can you can understand where that might be problematic in terms of what I mentioned there around transition or injury. Um, if they're identifying more as an athlete, but, you know, they're not being paid to be an athlete. And um, that can have a really detrimental impact on them um, in, in terms of their, their lives as a whole. So I, I think the important thing that we're doing and what the GPA is trying to do and, and one major part of our role is to try and support players with their dual career. So to try and support them with their development of their lives off the pitch. So the on-field stuff is kind of looked after, I suppose, by the coaches and by the management and by the county board. But the off-field stuff in terms of their education, their professional lives, their relationships, their hobbies, etc. That's where the GPA comes in. And that's where a lot of our, our work is done with players in terms of developing their identity outside of sport. So that when it comes to that transition phase or when it comes to an injury, that it's not going to have such a negative impact on their lives because they have, I suppose, put their energy into these other areas as well. Yeah, that's great. And can I ask um, just off that? More or less on average, do you know how long a career lasts in Gaelic football? I mean, given injuries or, you know, just maybe you're not, uh, you know, a starter, one of the best players, More, you know, what's the average? So I don't know off the top of my head the average. I can tell you it varies quite a lot. So I suppose for myself, um, 17 years was mine. But for females, it's probably longer because they start younger. So um, I started at the age of 15 playing senior and county. So for a lot of male players, they might begin their career around 21 um, starting with their their team and they might stay playing into their early 30s. So there, there's definitely a range there in the average amount. I, I'm not 100 percent sure what that is. But, you know, a lot of players would dedicate a large proportion of their early 20s and, and into their 30s playing. I think what you just mentioned is so important and um I follow a lot of sports and I know that some leagues do have this development and support system after, you know, um, to get them settled into a new role or a new job. Because, you know, obviously the ones that are in that, that you know, are like, you know, two, three percent of the players, you know, especially in, in some sports where, you know, teams have 30 or 40 players. Most of them you never hear about their, you know, practice squad players or role players. They need a career after too. Like their identity is tied just as much as the others. No? So then going back to, to the stigma uh, part of it, do you still feel that not enough 
players open up or seek support for their mental health. Um, is this something that, that you're really working hard to increase? Definitely. I think like obviously sport is and it's a micro, well, the GEA anyway, it's a microcosm of, of Irish society. So stigma is something, unfortunately, that is a part of society and we're moving in the right direction. There's a lot more discourse around it. There's a lot more people talking about it, which is very positive. But it's definitely something that's still there. And we actually did a study and um, we did a research study with the University of Limerick during COVID. And we were very interested in help seeking and barriers to help seeking. Because that was something I suppose that we wanted to try and to counteract or we wanted to try and address. Um, because we'd seen that our numbers for our counseling support services had increased, but they'd increased very slightly given the circumstances we were in with COVID-19, where everything had been turned upside down. And, you know, oftentimes maybe there might be other things in players' lives that aren't going well, but their sport is the kind of structure and it's the one consistent thing, and that had been taken away. So we wanted to understand maybe if players were struggling and then if they were, why they, they weren't reaching out. Um, and one of the main things that came back to us was that they felt that they should be able to handle it themselves. And I think that's something that we've seen, um, you know, in the in the research as well, that there's that, you know, feeling that I should be strong enough to do this on my own. I, I don't need help. I don't need support. And that's a message we've been really trying to, to counteract and to combat. Yeah, no, and I'm nodding because um, in my career as a doctor, I've seen the same thing, you know, with people with all sorts of conditions. Like you say, this is a societal thing. It's not unique to athletes necessarily. And you know what? I'd also say that I've, I may hear this more from, from males than females where, you know, they feel that, okay, I've got this long-term physical condition, say heart disease, diabetes. Yeah, it's natural for me to feel bad, but I have to handle this myself. You know, there's no time to talk about the emotional stuff. So, you know, I, I hear you talking about that from a sports perspective, and it really rings true in, in other areas. You made an important point earlier around, you know, a physical injury. Everyone claps for a player or, you know, like it's very easy to see the physical damage or the impact of a, an injury like a broken leg or a torn hamstring. But, you know, when you can't see the, the mental impact, I think people, you know, they forget about maybe or just don't consider it. Whereas that can often be the thing that, that players struggle with most. The, the physical thing, you know, they can understand, they can see it. Whereas the mental side of things, they're just not as aware of the importance of that and the impact that that can have. And it's trying to raise that awareness is a, a large part of what we're trying to do. Yeah. And that's really important because it's visual, right? So you can tell if someone is hobbled and that's why they're not performing at their best. But imagine if a player says after a match, oh, I was just feeling really anxious and that's why I missed that key goal or key kick. You know, most people will react and say, well, no, that's not the reason. You just misaligned it and you're terrible, you know? Um, so it's hard to admit those things. It's really hard. That's why I'm really impressed that you know, a lot of elite athletes, globally elite athletes are coming out and saying, I cannot compete at the top level because I have to take care of my mental health. And I, I wanted to then open it up to these differences between male, female, because some of these, you know, most of these elite athletes have been um, women, right? Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, Venus Williams came out and, and shared something as well. Do you think there are these differences between male and female athletes and what can we do to combat them or to reduce them? Yeah, I think what we've seen definitely echoes what's kind of borne out in the research as well, that male and young males are particularly hard to reach um, and that females maybe are more open to speaking about the issues that they have. And they're also maybe more comfortable, even if it's not professional support that they're seeking, they're more open to speaking to, you know, friends or family 
Um, and we've also seen that, you know, since we merged with the WGPA, which is the, the Female Players Association, there has been an increase in the, the female members who are accessing our counseling support, while the, the male numbers have kind of stayed relatively the same as last year. So definitely we can see it in terms of the reasons why we know the research suggests that, that young males, there, there is that kind of hypermasculinity, especially among athletes and that sense of, you know, maybe it's going to be perceived as a weakness. Um, and, and that's something that we've really been trying to combat in terms of when we have players who speak about it, you know, they're, they're massive role models and the importance of that peer to peer learning. Every time we have a player who comes out and, and is vocal or speaks about their experience of, of seeking support um, and the positive impact it has had on them, we see an uptake in the you know access to our supports as well. So that's massively important. And what you've said there around Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, like I think that's they have done a, a massive, um, you know, a massively positive thing for society in general in terms of making it OK and normalizing the fact that we all have mental health and we all need to look after it. And the fact that, you know, I've trained for this thing my whole life, I've put in so much preparation, but this is not more important than my mental health. My mental health has to take priority. And that's massively important. I agree. I agree. It is affecting society in general because, I mean, I, I argued this in a, in a recent talk I gave as well that. You know, Simone Biles is talking about her job after all, you know, like that can apply to anybody doing their job. You know, I cannot perform at my job if I'm a doctor or a fireman or a nurse or a lawyer. If I'm under, you know, stress, it's just I'm not going to be the same. Um, I'm a huge follower of American football. (laughs) And yesterday, only yesterday, an elite one, an elite player on, on, on a team, um, a male, male football player, wide receiver, he actually posted and saying that he had to take care of his mental health and he would be stepping away from the game. Um, Nothing um, of the sort had come out. So I don't know if if we really are breaking this glass ceiling in society. It seems that we are. Like you said, any one of these is is going to be hugely influential. Um, I think it's it's the first time that I've seen a player, like a male player at that level, come out and say, I'm stepping down. Not, Not after the fact that I was going through something difficult. No, I mean, I am... Like just right before the game, you know, I'm not playing. So I think, yeah, like there's a domino effect happening. And I'm hopeful that we can talk about this openly, no matter who you are. Right. Um, And okay, so that's male and female. But I also wanted to ask you this, and you probably have a really good insight into this, given that you're a veteran now in the game. Is there differences between veterans and rookies? Um, And as you know, do you account for this as they go throughout their career? And then the other one I wanted to ask you about is amateur versus professional. Like, you, you know, um, Gaelic football is an amateur sport. And I, I, I actually think that's really amazing, by the way. And I think it's a, it's a reason why it's really easy to follow it because, you know, they're, they're amateurs. It's for the love of the game. What are the differences there? Do, do you mind sharing some that you've seen? Um, there are some differences, definitely. I think we have tried to address this through um, targeting different programs at um, you know different groups or different cohorts of our membership. So we have a, a massive range in our membership. We have 4,000 members, male and female. Um, and they range, as I said, from young girls or young guys starting off at 18 or 21, right up to retired players who are past players of the game. So there, there's a huge kind of scope there of, of need, I suppose, and, and of different interests and, and different levels of, of um, so support required. Um, so what we do is we try to tailor different programs at different cohorts. So, for example, we, we run a rookie camp, which is an, aduc- an induction camp for those young players. And it's all around kind of introducing them to the demands associated with having a dual career and providing the kind of tools and, and skill sets for them to manage that. 
Um, so, for example, we do a lot of work around kind of mental fitness and resilience, as well as how to manage maybe the pressures of social media um, and then other things around kind of nutrition and just managing your time and your schedule and things like that. Um, because obviously they're, they're going from maybe school to college um, and they're also going to be starting off playing a game that demands an average of, of 31 hours commitment. So um, then at the other end of the spectrum, then we provide support around transition. So we run a transition camp for players who are considering retiring or who have recently retired. And again, we're dealing with very specific issue there in terms of maybe exploring their identity, exploring, um, you know, different kind of coping mechanisms for them, because for a lot of our players, the sport maybe has been a coping mechanism for them for a lot of stressors. And when they're no longer involved in that as well, it's like, what are their hobbies and interests? Can I turn to now? What are the things can I use? Um, and, and looking at the next phase of, the, of life or the next chapter um, in a way that's exciting and not in a way that they're missing something, if that makes sense. And then kind of, I suppose, throughout um, a player's career, we're constantly trying to develop new workshops around for example, during the pandemic, we we developed a kind of a webinar series called Time to Thrive, which looked at kind of mindset. And it was kind of geared at, you know, using this time as an opportunity and, and trying to find different ways to fill their time. We also looked at kind of we use the language around mental fitness, again, trying to kind of, you know, counter that stigma around mental health or, or mental illness. Um, and we also think it's something that maybe players can relate to a little bit more because you know, they can relate to physical fitness very easily. Um, so it's just, you know, the mental side of things now is is something that there's more of a focus on, particularly as a lot of teams now have sports psychologists involved in their teams as well. So it's definitely more, I think, acceptable to players now and, and more accessible in terms of that language and, and talking about the mental side of the game, but the, the mental side of themselves too, in terms of their own mental health. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's great. Um, Really echo a lot of what you're saying. I think um, it is very much about preventing it to get to a certain stage and, and you know, talking about it in different ways and adapting to the audiences. Um, you know, it's something we preach to as well at, at Silvercloud. And, um, you know, I think, so you've answered my next question, which is, you know, how do you encourage um, people to, to reach out and your athletes to reach out? But um, then just like getting into the context right now of where we are, because, you know, this is obviously the topic that, you know, like it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a global issue, the pandemic, obviously. And um, have you seen any changes, positive or negative, in light of it? And what are you doing to adapt to this kind of new normal in the, in the post-pandemic future? Yeah, so just to, to answer the first part of the question, have I seen any changes? Yes, um, massive, um, drastic changes. In terms of the way that, that we do our work, so prior to the pandemic, all of the GPA's work would have been face-to-face, meeting mm-hmm. players one-to-one, meeting groups of players face-to-face. Um, obviously, similar to everybody else, when the pandemic happened, all of that had to move online. Um, so a lot of our, our supports were being delivered online through webinars and through Zoom. Everyone had Zoom fatigue. Um, but what we found was as well that, you know, we had used a very much an external kind of service provision model. Um, and we've moved as a result of the pandemic to a more internal model. So it's given us an opportunity to do a lot more one to work with our players ourselves rather than linking them in with, with service providers to, who are not part of the organization. And that's given us a really good insight into the needs of our members. We've gotten to know them a lot more because we're having a lot more conversations with them directly. And we, we've gathered a lot more data, which has been really useful for us. And something else that we've we found, and I was quite surprised at this finding, was we surveyed some of our members around the way that we deliver personal development coaching around their preference for face-to-face um, Zoom teams or phone call. 
And online through Zoom and Teams was the preference, um, which I was quite surprised that I, I thought people would be really excited to get back to face to face. But I think the convenience of it and the fact that, you know, everything really has, has moved online now. It's a much more acceptable and accessible way of doing things. Um, and people see that they get a lot of the same value. While I still argue, you know, th- there's a lot to be said for, for meeting somebody face to face and in person. But they can get a lot of the same value from an online conversation. Um, but what else we've done to adapt, I suppose, is we now we've historically always had a counselling support system um, or service for our members. And that's something we're really proud of. But we've added to that in terms of a tech support system um, and also a digital platform through SilverCloud, which we're delighted to be able to offer because we've seen a change in the preference of our members in terms of how they want to access support. So obviously with the new generation of, of younger players, they've grown up with with online support and, and access to online support. So and um, we're delighted to be able to provide a range of different um, pathways. And, and that's something that I think is a real positive to come out of the pandemic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, it's true that um, there is a comfort level with doing it online sometimes. I mean, there is a sense of, you know, anonymity or individuality that you can do it on your own time, you know, um, and connect and gain the same benefits. So, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're really happy and proud to be working with you, you there. And, um, and that the fact that, you know, more people are accessing because of it is amazing. Is there, um, obviously you have all of these different teams. Is there an imbalance between from team to team um, in accessing these? Um, don't give out the teams because then, you know, I'm going to start to make predictions on next season. But, um, <laughs> but do you think that that's, that's, that's a thing too? Like maybe peers communicating with each other that this is helping? Yeah, so we've we've definitely seen, not not specifically with just our, our wellbeing supports, but just with the services we provide in general. If there is a peer, if there is a player who's, you know, talking about the benefits of this service to other players within their squad, we definitely see an increase in engagement from those squads. So it just like we've always known we we can talk to players as much as we want, but it's not as powerful as a player, you know, that player to player relationship. And um, so the more that, you know, players talk to other players about these supports, the, the more likely they are to engage, uh, engage with them. And in terms of the well-being supports and just the overall player development program that the GPA has, we, we have done some analysis on this. And, you know, the squads who have the most players engaged are the squads who are most successful and who are, you know, doing better than others in terms of, of winning games. And the kind of, I suppose, the, the reason that we put that down to is that they are focusing on that holistic development. They're not just only focusing on the game and there's research that's been done with AFLPA in terms of, you know, if players are happy off the field, if their lives are going well off the field, their performance on the field improves. And that's what the GPA is trying to do. Yeah, that, that's that's great to hear you say that in terms of, you know, research being conducted and it's not just anecdotal. That's that's fascinating. Um, yeah, I wish we could talk forever. Um, I certainly have a bunch of other questions to ask as a fan and as a researcher. But let me finish just on one and, you know, talking researcher to researcher, I think we take pride in, in thinking, you know, far ahead into the future and, you know, what, what do we want to know in one or two or three years time? And so I'm going to ask you a version of this, obviously, and with regards to, to what you do. So, you know, given all of these insights that you've told me and all of the research that you do, what is it that you don't know now that in two or three years you'd like to be able to say, oh, now I know this and this has positively helped um, my work and, and our players? I think that's a really good question. And I also I'm not sure if this is something that could be achieved in a timeline of two to three years, but it is something that I would really like to be able to answer is 
we would often see that maybe players just come to us at that crisis point, at that point where, you know, things have, have gone beyond the stage where, you know, minimal amount of support is sufficient, where they, they need extent, extensive and intensive support. And I would really love to, to understand or to know why some players are, are really willing to engage with these preventative, proactive um, types of measures and, and others aren't. And I don't know. I know that's not an easy question to answer, but I think we know the research, all the research highlights the importance of early intervention. And we know from our players that, you know, nutrition, sleep, exercise, recovery, that's all kind of part of their day to day lives. It's embedded in what life is for them. How do we embed, you know, the prioritization of mental health and strategies to support your mental health on an ongoing basis? That's something that I would really like to be able to to find the answer to. Again, I don't know if that's possible in the space of two or three years. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it's something that you could build on, I guess. I mean, just thinking simple questions maybe of you know asking them why did you wait until now or do you think you could have gone or when did this start and what made you not come in back then you know given you know this is what we could have done back then i mean frame it in such a way but you know i'm sure you'll get more and more insights as time goes on and the fact that you're asking these questions now i think is great um yeah i think the gpa is lucky to have people like you i will say that um and i i hope yeah hopefully every governing body in sports has something similar because i think you touched on a lot of key issues that again are not unique to sports um they're a societal thing but it's just great to know that in this microcosm of sports these these things are being taken care of for the gpa so Jenny, thanks so much. This was great. Um, thanks so much for giving me all, all these insights to the questions. Um, is there just uh, anything else you'd like to say before we end things? Yeah, I'd just like to say thanks very much. Um, it was a pleasure to join you and for the opportunity to talk about what we do and, and also to congratulate you and Silvercloud on the amazing work that you guys are doing. I, I think it's fantastic, you know, making these supports that are so vital accessible to so many more people. Um, it's just a fantastic achievement and, and just congratulations to everybody involved and, and keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks. I think what, one thing that I think you and I have in common is we we love what we do um, and we feel lucky to be a part of it. So, so great. And thanks so much for your comment, Jenny. Thank you.